Hey, Jesse. So Jesse Zeman's joining me here in my living room. Um, we've been trying to get together for a week now, and uh, we're actually really hoping to sit down and have this conversation with Larry Woodrow to add some context. And um, anyways, welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Dylan. You want to do a quick introduction of uh, who you are and what you're all about? Sure. Uh, I'm Jesse Zeman. I'm with the uh, BC Wildlife Federation, I guess, today, the Director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration. Perfect. And I'm very lucky to have Jesse as a friend. So every once in a while, I get an idea of what I want to talk about on the podcast. And and Jesse comes and goes through Vancouver and I live close to the airport. So I usually get him over for dinner and a hang. So we just got an hour here. We're going to, because I kind of got in, a, I wouldn't say trouble, but um, I, uh, coming back from my whitetail hunt this year, um, we had a challenging hunt this year. And, I, and, yep. and I'll, I'll be up front. Like we hunt, and we've yep. been hunting there. I've been hunting there for over 30 years. And the, my hunting partners have been hunting there for like, Potentially 50. I think Larry's probably probably hunted there for 50 years, and he's probably shot a buck there every year for the past 50 years. Or two, yeah. Or two back, back when, when it was, was two. Back yeah. in a two buck area. Yeah. So, so in the past probably three years, we've noticed a distinct decline in deer sightings, and certainly our harvest rate has gone down. Yeah. And and um, so after a, a very challenging hunt this year, I posted a picture of the of the buck that I eventually shot. Um, or a picture of me towing the buck out of the woods um, that I sh literally shot at like 7.50, sorry, 9.58 on Sunday morning. And my turnaround time was 10 o'clock on Sunday morning to pack up camp and make 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 back to Vancouver, right? So like literally like down to the last minute and I snuck up on this deer, it was in his bed and got him. And, um, but as much as it was a, it was great to have a successful hunt and it was a, it's a beautiful deer and, and I'm very thankful it was also really, it was really disheartening this trip because, you know, hunting with my community of hunters, like I said, have been doing this for upwards of 50 years. They were coming back from a day of hunting with, without having seen a deer. Yeah. And that's remarkable. And I had, I had a number of days where I saw, you know, no deer or one deer or a fawn wandering around by itself. Like, yeah. just, it, it was really, really sad to see what was happening with the deer population, especially in a place that I know so well, mm -hmm. and I've hunted and, I, and 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 really I'm really good at hunting it, and certainly these old boys who have relied on this place to fill their freezer every year, and who are you know aging and, and is you know their physical abilities are diminishing. However, their knowledge and skill has not gone away, so they should be seeing deer and they should be still filling their freezer. So, um, while it may have been it was a successful hunt, it was actually quite sad to see. The, the lack of um, deer population. So anyways, going back, so the reason why I'm having this conversation is I posted this sort of bit of a story online of like, hey, successful hunt, you know, down to 958. And then, uh, but you know, in all reality, I only saw 12 deer on this entire trip. Yeah. And that was heartbreaking. And I wanna know why. And, yeah. I, and I can probably suggest that the logging trucks rolling out of the valley one after another has it has a factor. And I said, the second point is probably the the, the effectiveness of the doe hunt and worth a longer conversation. Yeah. So quickly followed up by that, I got text from some of my biologist buddies saying, yeah. you know, before you start spouting off on, on Instagram, be sure to sit down with an expert and talk about it. So, so that's why I was so glad you're here. So you have someone who's not an expert. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Well, <laughs> so the, the other challenging part is those experts who I'd love to have talk to me about this are, are a bit encumbered by the fact that they work for provincial government. Sure. And, and so it's very difficult for, for the biologists to come 
on and talk about um, wildlife management issues and challenges and such from because they represent the government. Sure. And pretty much anything that, you know, as a public servant, when I'm talking about parks, I have to talk about that through, well, with the support of my government affairs um, bureau. and Giuseppe. Giuseppe, we call it. Yeah. So without going down that line, that, that we can certainly say that, um, well, we, you know, I certainly would love to have this conversation. It's just a longer process. So, sure. And in light of that, it's been a week since I came back from hunting in your past through town. Let's talk about whitetail populations and sure. and mule deer populations and kind of, um, yeah, the, why we might be interpreting what we see on the landscape and what maybe some of the actual management behind uh, where we're at. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my first question. Okay. So when a guy comes to you and says, I've been hunting the same place yeah. for 50 years, the same week. And when I was back in the 1980s, we saw 20 deer a day. And now we see two deer a day. There's no deer here anymore. Yeah. How valid is that as, as from a wildlife management perspective in helping understand what's going on? Uh well, I don't, I mean, valid and valuable, I guess, are two different things too, right? The The challenge with anecdotes is they're really hard to validate and they're hard to um, put into science, right? So like kind of what we're going to talk, go into, I guess, is the citizen science is what people see versus what they used to see versus what they expect to see. And there is some social research that's been done on that. And quite often, you know, people... People remember the good old days. The good old days aren't always as good as they remember, but they're better than they are today. So there's an expectation there. But the challenge with, with citizen science is we don't really have a way to trap it. And so in BC, the way we trap it is through hunter questionnaires, um, which say basically, how many days did you go out hunting? How many deer did you shoot? They don't uh, quantify or qualify what you saw or how many animals you saw. So there's missing data there. Um, but in terms of, you know, I've never done this or I've never seen this or, you know, it's really hard to say, okay, that makes sense. Um, or that doesn't make sense. It's really hard to, especially when people, these management units are so big. And so some of these management units, we can have something big happen, like a forest fire goes through. So part of the management unit, the hunting's absolutely on fire. It's never been that good. And the other half is still growing in. And so we get complaints even in the same area, the same management unit where one hunter's saying it's the worst it's ever been. Another hunter's saying, I've never had hunting this good in my life. So so it's hard to, you know, it's uh, it's hard to put it into science. It's hard to put it into science when people say, well, this is what I'm seeing or this is what I'm not seeing. It's hard to say, because even with like grizzly bears, you know, people will say, I've never seen this many grizzly bears in my life. We need to do this or we need to do that. And then in the same case, like in the Elk Valley, we go out, we do the grizzly bear inventory and it shows that we have half the bears that we did, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. So it's really hard. It's really hard. I agree. <laughs> so, so the other factors yeah, I would, you know, for when we're, when we're relying on anecdotal um, assessments of, of a deer population um, or, or a hunt or, or a wildlife population, the, the other factor is like, you know, there, there was probably a number of factors, like why we didn't see any deer on this trip that may not, I mean, the population is no doubt down. I mean, I, I have to say that it is down. Having said that, we've been in this, I think it's been down for a number of years and we've had yeah. more success in other years where the population has probably been the same. So what are some yeah. other factors? That well, yeah, when you talk about whitetail specifically, I think it's 
I think it's important to talk about when we talk about deer in BC or mule deer and white-tailed deer, it's really good to, to start people off talking about deer, how they evolve and their ecology, right? So okay. mule deer and white-tailed deer are totally distinct in the sense that, you know, white-tailed deer is this really old species. They evolved in really closed-in habitat. Um, their defense mechanism is basically to know every trail in their home range and run, right? That's their thing is they're very cryptic. Um, when they rut, they also, you know, they don't rut visually. So they go out, they put down scrapes, does come by, they pee in the scrapes, check the scrapes. That's how everybody kind of tells each other what's going on in terms of the rut, right? Mule deer are totally opposite. They're a relatively new species. They evolved in open habitat. So they like to be able to see their predators coming, you know, they're a lot easier to hunt from a hunter's perspective. They're far less cryptic. That's why the season's a lot shorter, why in a lot of jurisdictions they'll have draws or much shorter seasons because they're just easier to hunt. So, so that ecology diverges right away. So when you think about a landscape, you think about a landscape that's really closed in, well, that landscape's gonna favor whitetail, whereas one that's really open is gonna favor mule deer right out of the gates, right? Yeah. The other thing with mule deer and whitetail is that whitetail deer are far more productive so that means that white-tailed deer have more fawns, they have more twins, they get pregnant earlier, um, and when they kind of occupy the same landscape as mule deer, uh, at least in a landscape that favors white-tailed deer, white-tailed deer also have higher survival rates. So it's really important to understand that in habitat that favors white-tailed deer, white-tailed deer are just gonna do way better than mule deer. And that kind of introduces this concept of a parent competition. And what a parent competition is, it's very similar to the caribou story. So you go into this landscape where there's- Hold on, before we get too far down here. Like, yeah. So, so when, it, when we're talking like competitiveness, like yeah. are, are we actually talking about like, you know, like a, a white-tailed deer would physically chase off a, a mule deer buck? Or is it or is it just that if you're more successful over time and you, and you have two fawns and they have one fawn? So, if the white so that's, yeah. Yeah, so that's part of it is that white tails right out of the gates are gonna have, they're gonna get pregnant earlier, then they're gonna have more fawns. So right out of the gate, they've got a competitive advantage. And in places in BC where we haven't had fires for 60 or 70 years, we also know that that habitat type is going to favor white-tailed deer as well, Yeah. right? So they've kind of got two legs up, but the other part, the apparent competition part is that when you have white-tails increase on a landscape, you end up having more cougars on that landscape, right? So more prey means more predators. And it's very similar to the moose caribou story. So you have all these white tails, they're taking off. You have mule deer on the same landscape. And this landscape is a landscape that they don't do that well in. So what happens over time is that there's more cougars and the mule deer that are there are disproportionately affected by the cougar population as compared to the white tails. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so they're, they're more hammered by the cougars. Are like Right, like, so so we can have areas, like there's research done in the West Kootenays in the Ponderé, where the white-tailed deer population is growing and the mule deer population is declining. And the reason for that is because the cougar population stays high and it makes most of its living on the white-tail, but when a cougar runs into a mule deer, there's a really good chance it's gonna kill the mule deer. Yeah. So you've got these two competing factors. Um, so does that make sense? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So, right? so they're, they're, I mean, eventually, essentially, they're in competition because they're, they're. Yeah, not directly. They're not. They're not eating the same plant, but the way they, the way the landscape changes, changes the deer population. Yes. And so I think that's the important factor is that we are, you know, the one constant here in British Columbia is we have, 
deforestation that that is removing you know forests and replacing it with with pine trees pine trees <laughs> and so and which which animal favors that well, landscape disturbance nobody really does nobody eats nobody survives on pine trees no way and nobody no there's no food and nobody survives on pine grass which is usually what grows back in these cut blocks because we don't burn them yeah right um i think that you if you had you know forests that were managed more like the old days where they would go in and do broadcast burns in the cut blocks it would probably favor mule deer over time right because mm -hmm. that's how they evolve but under the current approach i mean mule deer are definitely getting hammered and so so mule deer before this and still are like the big concern and the other thing in bc especially with bc hunters bc hunters favor mule deer over white-tailed deer they prefer to hunt mule deer over white-tailed deer because they're easier to hunt and it's not because mule deer are actually easier to hunt it's because that's how hunters were brought up hunting so hunters in bc were brought up by their dad and their dad said oh go walk this fur ridge and you'll run into a mule deer and you can shoot it well, if you want to go hunt white-tailed deer successfully, walking a fur ridge is definitely not going to help you, right? So with mule deer, you can walk and you can bump a mule deer, you can grunt or whistle at it, and chances are it's going to stop and you're going to shoot it. If you walk, not still hunting, but if you walk a fur ridge with whitetails, chances are you're either A, not going to see them, or B, you're going to see tails and they're going to be gone, right? Does that make sense? Well, it does make sense, but so I think, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's how I grew up on whitetails is looking for nice places that deer live, yeah. which is for forest if you can find it, yeah. and being as sneaky as you can, yeah. right, and spot them, right. But by by far and away, the more effective way is to hunt in a high traffic, high density whitetail deer area and set up a tree stand or a blind of some kind and, and watch for a buck that's cruising through yeah. during the rut. Yeah. You know. So so whitetail. If you're a whitetail hunter, I mean, whitetail deer are easy to hunt because you set up a tree stand, you set up a ground spline where they go by and you just sit and wait for the deer to go by. But a lot of hunters, and, and there's a big difference between still hunting and hiking. Like when you say still hunting, you're probably heading across a furridge, you stop, you wait for five minutes, you move slowly, you look around, you take a few steps. Mule deer hunters, and you can, you can watch them do this, they just hike and bump into deer. Yeah. And the deer run and Bumping then they shoot. stop and then they yeah. stop and then they shoot them. Yeah. With the whitetail, you know, whitetail deer, that's, it's very unlikely that unlikely. you're going to be a successful whitetail. So, so you have all these factors that basically the way things were going or are going, it's the landscape is going to favor whitetail deer. And so in places like um, the Christian Valley or the uh, Granby, over time, these habitat shifts, like when you look at the maps and look back into the 50s or 40s or 30s when they had huge uh wildfires there like it's a totally different place from what it would look like back then okay so over time we've definitely favored white-tailed deer and we're also seeing that in region three too they're seeing white-tailed deer where they never had white-tailed deer mm -hmm. right and so they're expanding rapidly in those and they're areas. even seeing them on the other side of the fraser river now sure sure region five is right yeah. and so white-tailed deer like they're really good at eking out a living basically like wherever they go and especially around people wherever there's been anthropogenic change. So this is kind of like the moose caribou story, same thing, right? So caribou live in this environment where basically it's predator free because there isn't a lot of prey. We go in, we log these places like the Revelstoke country around Wells Gray. All of a sudden you get all this regen that comes in, the moose population takes off, more moose means more predators, more predators means dead caribou. So the, so the white-tailed deer, mule deer story is very similar to that. And so they just out-compete them. And not directly, but through predators and landscape change, white-tailed deer end up out-competing mule deer over time. Okay. So 
so a guy like me, so what I'm hearing is like, so, so my little community of hunters that I grew up with that are, we're passionate about whitetail hunting, mm-hmm. actually, oddly enough, passionate about still hunting for forests for mm-hmm. whitetail, mm-hmm. which is unique, I suppose. And so, you know, maybe that, and again, this is what I loved about kind of when my first question was like, you know, uh, you know, how relevant is it? Like, uh, you know, someone's perspective of, you know, their little data capture they, you know, for 50 years, the same week every year going back to the same spot. Like it's only relevant as much as it's only telling one very small part of the larger story. Right. And so yeah. we're only capturing data on exactly our own perception of how we hunt and what we hunt. And so in a larger landscape where we're trying to manage for other species or that, yes, in that one area, like yes, white-tailed deer, uh, the population when I was a kid, was significantly it's higher. Crazy, yeah, yeah, significantly Absolutely. higher. Yeah, and, and as was the mule deer population as well. I yeah, mean, I, I, for sure, it was a big deal as a kid because you know I would have to look at a white only white tailed deer were open, and so I'd have to like you know do a long assessment of like I see a spike buck standing there. I'm like, okay, it's got a white rings around its eyes. It's got the white ring. Okay, now just turn around, just turn around, and then you see the flag come up, and you're like, yeah, it's white tail, and then it's too late. But and uh, so. We had that we constantly. We're always trying to figure out if it was a white tail or mule deer, as you know, because there was enough around in the landscape that 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 there, that was an issue. Now the there are mule deer still, but there's very few mule deer. As is, uh, but in addition, there's there's much fewer white tails. So yeah, so there's something happening on the, like regardless of the population yep. dynamic between the mule deer and the white tail, there's definitely something yeah happening to the. Right. Overall, while the popular number of hooves on the ground has gone down, whether they're white-tailed hooves or mule deer hooves. Yeah, and so, so, so if we also when you talk in in that part of the world where you're talking, the when you talk to the outfitters, you know, 30 years ago in those areas, when they went out, they would have to work to find cougar tracks because cougars were heavily hunted. Now they can go out and find cougar tracks every day. So, oh, okay. So that has changed in a big way. And there's a pile of research that came out of that stuff in the West Coonies, but also in, in the States um, where they've tried to manage cougar populations down and it hasn't been affected because it's not at a landscape level, right? They'll harvest cougars in a certain area, but it just infills with young cougars again. And, you know, in a sense, the way cougars are managed is very similar to the way we manage deer, where typically all we harvest is males. And if you just harvest males, you're not actually quote unquote managing wildlife. All you're doing is shooting deer or cougars. That's all you're really doing because you have these females that continue to reproduce. Okay. And the, so yeah. they basically pick up the slack in the population. So the cougar population doesn't change really over time. It's just that you end up shooting more males. Yeah. So this is, and, and generally speaking, how we've always managed our, our deer and moose and populations is that if, as long as the cows or the doe population is stays steady or grows, doesn't really matter how many males you kill because one male can breed multiple cows or multiple does and sustain the growth of the herd right time. yeah typically so so the cougar story is is part of this broader story but then the other thing the big thing in the room everybody's you know wants to talk about is the white-tailed doe season and so the white-tailed doe season was part of this discussion about mule deer and a parent competition. And out of the Granby, I mean, the, those hunters over there have been talking about how bad it is since the sixties, how things have changed for mule deer. Mm-hmm. Not just like, not just in the last 30 years, like there's complaints back into the early 1900s in the boundary about the changes in the deer population. And the boundary mule deer harvest by hunters, I think is down probably 90% in the last 50 years. Yeah, Like it's staggering. 
Yeah. Like such a change. There used to be, you know, they, in the old, in the newspapers, people go by these hillsides, south facing hillsides, and they're seeing like hundreds of deer. Yeah. Hundreds, literally hundreds of deer out on the side of these hills, right? Yeah. So it's like this huge change. So part of the white tailed doe discussion was people would not stop talking about mule deer and how they're having issues and how we need to change things. Well, in that part of the world, you know, we don't hunt mule deer does. There's probably a handful of tags. We kill more on the highway in one day than we do with hunters, right? Yeah. So part of the white tailed deer story was, you know, well, we should be shifting pressure onto white-tailed deer because we know that they're growing. We know that they're expanding across the province. We also know that they're driving up cougar populations and that at this stage of the game, we're not managing cougars to a point where we're gonna see a response in deer populations. So that's part of it. And then what you're seeing too is, you know, there's, there's definitely a chance that the white-tailed doe season has reduced the white-tailed deer population for sure. Um, with the mule deer project that we have, I think we had 150 trail cameras that we put out this year in our so, three so, study areas. So just just before you jump down that, uh, we'll go down that road. Um, what's the, what was the mule deer project you guys started off? So the mule deer project um, was a response out of the Granby as well, where they had all these complaints and it was like, okay, let's start a project to see how mule deer are responding uh, to changes in the landscape in different parts of the province. So we have deer collared in the boundary area where you're talking about. We have deer collared in the west side of the Okanagan. We have deer collared in Cache Creek. And so the objective was to get, have 90 does collared per year. And then I think we're looking at 60 fawns per year over, uh, it's a five year study. So part of that project, one component is, is collaring these deer, seeing where they move, seeing how they survive, how well they survive, where they die, when they die, what habitats they're picking. And then another part was monitoring occupancy. So we've got trail cameras just to basically see, you know, who is occupying these different study areas. Mm -hmm. And so where you're talking about for white-tailed deer, um, we have a whole bunch of mule deer collared there and they are dying at like an unbelievable rate. Yeah. Like it is. And not from hunters. No, no, there's no, I mean, there's a hand, like I said, a handful of antlerless tags. They are dying like, like almost like as bad as rabbits in that area. Wow. Like that's the rate. Like they're, I think the rate, I think the survival rate for the does was something like 69%, which is extremely low. So 31% of those does are dying annually. Annually. Of yeah. The, of your study group. Yeah. And so when you compare that to a place like Cache Creek where the big fire was, the survival rate in that area is 95%. So they're doing well. So something's happening to these deer in, in the boundary, boundary area. So it's not just, and then that's not necessarily a hunting. Or so that's not, it's, sorry, not hunting. it's not hunting. It's not necessarily logging that's happening in that moment. I mean, it's not like they're, I mean, there's potential for starvation as a result of deforestation, I suppose, but, um, but there's something else going on here. And it sounds like it's coming back to the, cougar dilemma or right yeah and so cougars uh, i think in the boundary to date we've had 22 it's probably increased because they die so frequently um it's probably higher but out of 22 mortalities 15 of them were from cougars in the boundary wow so it's big but but that just doesn't mean that it's just cougars that can also mean that we have a landscape level management issue because we know with mule deer as well that does that are heavier that go into winter heavier have heavier fawns and heavier fawns have higher survival rates so there could be a food piece in this too yes. and we talked about their evolution how they like to see in open habitats so when we have fire suppression you not only reduce mule deer food 
because they like the food that comes up after a fire, you also reduce sight lines for them, which means that they're also more, more vulnerable to predation. Yeah. So one of the big things that happened when they, when they removed all, what they were, what they called, uh, um, uh, what was he recovering logging? No, they, they, Forest Renewal BC. Well, no, they, when they, um, after the pine beetle went through, they, um, there was some liberal, liberal, liberal efforts to remove all the timber from the landscape because it would be, it would no longer be valuable after. Oh, salvage logging. Salvage yeah. Thank you. And so there was basically forest prescriptions for logging that eliminated every tree in region five for huge, vast areas of beetle, beetle affected areas. And, and one of the, one of the things that wasn't, I mean, one of the, one of the many factors they didn't, didn't take into account when they were planning these, uh, this, this deforestation was the effects on moose mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the main, and one of the factors, of course, if you're a moose and you have no tree to stand behind, then a wolf from can see it from five miles away, mm -hmm. and it would make you much more vulnerable. And you, right, and roads is the big thing with predators, with wolves especially, is when you put linear features on the landscape, same as cougars. It's just like people. People like hunters. A lot of hunters like driving roads because it moves them across the landscape way easier than if they had to hike. It's the same with wolves. So they're right. lazy too. They, right. so, so, yeah, exactly. So they it, got their beer in one hand. They're just like that's right. Down Heater three, turned yeah. up. Heater turned up. Yeah. They got their window down. On. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we also, of course, put cut blocks and ungulate food right on the side of these roads too. Right. So it just makes sense if you're out hunting moose as a predator, and that's where the moose want to be, then that's where you're going to cover. So, so same same for mule deer. They're affected deep. So large. So if you take all the trees off the landscape, that. Yeah, if you have a fire, I mean, if you have a fire, then you have food and it opens sight lines. So for mule deer, in that case, it would help them. Whereas big open places do the opposite for whitetails because whitetails have a different response to predation. So whitetails like closed in habitat, really thick stuff. Mule deer like really open stuff that has a lot of food on the, on yeah. the forest floor. So, so getting back to the doe season, yes, the doe season could have a regulating effect. But part of this mule deer project is all these trail cameras that are out that are going to have... I mean, we're going to have probably hundreds of thousands of pictures. And so what we should be able to get out of that is to see what's happening with the white-tailed deer population dynamics, i.e. how many fawns are they carrying? When are the fawns, you know, starting to decline or disappear? What time of the year? And how many fawns are we catching on our cameras compared to mule deer? So we're going to get a really good idea. Yeah, okay. So, so we'll have at least some science to say, here's what we're seeing. And the other part on the doe season in particular is that you're going to see or you probably already have seen a a behavioral response in white-tailed deer so so that if you're a doe and you stand out in the opening chances are you're not going to survive yes. right during yes. the doe season yeah. so for the hunter what that means is that there's going to be a behavioral shift by those does which means they're not going to be standing out in the open like they were or in these open areas because they're really vulnerable the bucks uh, as, as much as people like would like to think that they're really smart and they control the rut, it's the does that control the rat, 100%, right? They're what, they're what dictates everything. It's Absolutely. not like the bucks are like, oh, okay, well, let's today's the day we're going to start the rut and all you does better listen up because this is happening. No, no. So the does so, are the ones so that control the rut. Yeah. yeah. So they come into estrus, but if they've had a behavioral estrus change. Estrus, stop yeah. just for, you know, for folks, but estrus is that, is that period in which they are susceptible to get pregnant. Sure. And, yep. and that's when they, and they, of course, their pheromones are, are they're releasing pheromones and it attracts bucks to them. So if a doe walks through a forest, uh, she'll be either peeing or just leaving scent. And 
and that and, and if a buck comes along and cuts her track or smells her or downwind of her that buck is going to be tuned right in and, and start being very active sure yeah and she'll be you know they'll hit the scrapes as well that bucks have laid down the big scrapes the does will go and pee in those and so that that's how they communicate and so so when they come into estrus i mean now that you've had a behavioral change you're not going to find whitetails out where you used to find them before the season for sure before the season started you're going to find them in way thicker habitat because they know that being out in the middle of a cup block at lunchtime is not a good idea if you want to survive so hunters are going to see you know it's definitely possible that they're seeing fewer deer the other thing in all of this equation is that not last year but the year before we had two years which were the worst winters we've had since 96 97. So we know that we would have had really slow survival for deer, for fawns in those years. So you got a whole bunch of factors yeah. that are all like compiling at once. Um, so, I mean, yes, it's entirely reasonable to expect that white-tailed deer have declined, that they're going down in some areas, even though they're expanding in others. It's totally, you should expect that their behavior has changed, which means as a hunter, you want to use their ecology and you want to change your behavior, mm-hmm. um, which means sitting or being in a tree stand and hunting in those places that are really, you know, that are thick, that have food, but that are thick, that the whitetail or the deer really like to travel in. Um, those are changes like that's, yeah, I'm sure that's happened. Yeah, for cool. sure. Well, and then you can add logging, you can add roads. We know that animals avoid roads. There's a whole bunch of things especially where you're talking that have happened on the landscape that are going to move deer into different places for sure. And there's, and there's a couple other factors. Really. So, so going back to me and my whining about, you know, there to be no deer or in the particular area that I like to hunt. And, you know, there's, there are other things that, that, that can contribute. I mean, something as simple as the, is, is the moon, right? So we hunted during, we typically hunt from November 11th to about, you know, the 16th is sort of what we feel is the peak activity period associated with the rut um, where we hunt um, and where we see, start to see more activity. And um, uh, I think the estrus day is probably around the 16th or 17th. I don't know exactly what day it is, but it seems to be the activity is, is where we see bucks moving is pre-rut and mm-hmm. that's where we hunt. And then I know there's theories that, you know, there, that there's a peak activity period after the rut where mm-hmm. most of the does have been bred, but the bucks are still running around. But anyway, that's where we've always focused. Uh, but this year, uh, there's a couple of factors I think that, that could also, you know, why you may not see as many deer as you would expect. Um, one is that there was a full moon. So uh, I think that, you know, when, if you caught up from the tent for a pee in the middle of the night, it is bright out. It is so light out. Right, so, right. so the deer are able to kind of feel safe and feed through the whole evening. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, so when you wake up in the morning, you go for your hunt, all the deer are bedded down in yeah. their little hidey holes. Yeah, so they're yeah. not in the places you'd like to see them moving around because yeah. they've already been hanging out. So what we did notice is that there was a higher, there was more peak activity, there was more activity in the afternoons. So around one thirty, two o'clock, deer were kind of getting up from mm-hmm. their, their mm-hmm. sleep. So so if you're relying on just how many deer you see in your usual spots, well, that might be it. That might be something that's going on. Um, the other thing is we're having this incredible, like I was walking down Main Street in shorts and a t-shirt today sure. in Vancouver on November 23rd. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a crazy warm winter. All my f- ski buddies are all freaking out because there's no snow in the mountains, which also is an indication that like there, there's very, there's very, there's pretty much no reason for uh, a mule deer or a whitetail to migrate from where they feel safe and where they have more food and higher elevations um, down to their winter winter ranges just which is typically where most of us end up hunting because it's maybe nicer country a little easier to get into the deer more concentrated right that's the big one yeah so so for us you know 
there was probably no deer. No deer had migrated from the highlands down to where we had hunted. So that really is has an effect. So I think those are all factors. And there, there was one other one, and this is one I wanted to ask you about. Like, so I, I know when talking to the biologist community that the whitetail population has not gone down as a result of the um, of the doe season. So you, if they show up in February and do their counts, that number has stayed relatively mm-hmm. consistent for the past number. Are you, is that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, in that area, yeah, they've done a count for I think thirty years, and um, yeah, it's been pretty. It's it's affected by winter severity mm-hmm. um, for sure. But that's same with the literature. Like the literature for whitetail of the year all over North America basically says that hunting is not going to regulate them. It could very well be different in BC and you could very well in BC have places that get so much hunter pressure and effort that you could have a regulating effect on deer in one drainage or in one valley, but at a landscape level, that might not be the case. Yeah. And I think that's so, so in sort of thinking this through and, and, and I mean this again, this is, you know, eight, people in a tent coming up with theories as to why we haven't seen a deer for the whole day. And, and I think a lot of it is, and it comes back to it's like, well, I think this area, like the, if you're in the, the lower, just, it's a, it does get a lot of pressure. It's one of the closest places people can go to from Vancouver and, and try it's, and. And it's super well known. I mean, when people say you're going to go whitetail hunting, unless you live in the Coonies, like that's the name that's that comes up. Where people will think to go. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and so for sure, I think that the resident deer that live in the lower in the, in the winter ranges, mm-hmm. like there, there will be populations of deer that live year round in the winter ranges, mm-hmm. and then there's no doubt the deer that migrate from other areas down into the winter ranges. But that resident population, I think that population, it would no doubt be getting hammered by white-tailed doe hunters sure. that show up there in October. Yep. And so if you show up there in November for your buck hunting, yep. you'll notice there's just fewer deer sightings because they no doubt have been harassed for a month by other hunters that sure. just get pressured and then no doubt in a handful of them been shot and yeah. and they're no longer there yeah uh, and then maybe the odd guy even flukes a buck you know in october which oh yeah absolutely happen, you know? yeah oh yeah and, and i mean october long weekend historically in bc was always the weekend that everybody went out hunting yeah um, when we did discuss this whitetail alley list season there was discussion about having in november because that's when alberta has theirs it goes like most of them go from september to november but we said the same thing it's like actually november is probably not a great time because if we have a high snow year all the deer move down onto winter range and it's just going to be too much <laughs> yeah. right too busy too much so that's why it was pushed into october um but yeah october long weekend has always been the weekend where the majority of people go out and especially now that you know mule deer seasons are shorter they used to go over uh remembrance day long weekend they no longer do for most places so october long weekends the weekend when people go out yeah so you're gonna see yes you're right you're gonna see fewer does um you know more does are getting shot obviously and then you're gonna have a behavioral response and i think you know that's the big one because i think part of that is you know from what you guys got this year even though not everybody got a deer you got older deer and so that's a function as well of how the does behavior has changed so the bucks aren't as vulnerable either not because they're smarter but just because the does are not out in the open stuff so neither are the bucks is that what okay so let's go back to that so this so this year we we did see uh we 
uh, Larry got a Larry got a deer, and I got a deer, and both of those deer, particularly Larry's, was it was it was a, was a, a mature buck, probably bigger. He said it's bigger, the biggest white tail he's ever got. Yeah, it's big, yeah. And, and so the one I got, it's right just behind me here. That's that's the that is like if you look at the other white tails in the house here, like it's the biggest white tail I've ever killed in Kettle Valley. Um, but it's but yeah, it was like it was only mature buck I saw in six days of hunting very hard, mm-hmm. and and. And these are places that I've hunted since I was, again, I, I, yeah. I know exactly where I'm going to put my foot down before I put my foot down on every one of these hunts. And yeah. I know where those deer bedded down. And like, I knew where this deer was bedded down before he, you know, I knew exactly where he was going to be. And, and I mean, so that, that's an advantage I've had, but yeah. it also is sort of strikes me as, it's like, well, this is like, one of the things that's offset, like as a, as a kid, when I learned how to hunt, like I, I didn't actually know how to hunt. So, so I was able to have success with a higher deer population and low sure. knowledge and skill. Yeah. And now my skill has improved and my knowledge has improved. And so I'm successful year over year. However, it's, it's, I'm compensating for the lack of deer available right. with knowledge and effort and skill. Yeah. So it's, so it's, and so seeing with Larry too, right? Like Larry's fortunate that he, you know, knows exactly where to put his blind and how to set it up. And yeah. When he said he changed, he said normally he sits in a tree stand and he said he really liked the blind. I mean, that's what we quite often, we have a tree, tree, a few tree stands, but we sit in blinds now too. And he said he really liked that. Yeah. Because it's comfortable and it's quiet and they can't see you move in there too. That's the other thing is when you just have one window open and there's nothing behind you, it's all dark. You can afford to get away with some more movement and a bit of noise too. It seems to trap the noise really well. Whereas in a tree stand, the deer still can pick up on movement even if you're 15 or 20 feet up i feel like and the noise travels a lot more too yeah i sat in a tree stand there was a we had one of our one of our one of the deer spots that uh actually jeff's secret spot there that like he's actually pretty, like he's physically not able to hunt this spot anymore it's just too much up to get into it and this he's getting to be an older guy now and and i was thinking about this i was like as i, I was such an asshole that i was driving up to white chill camp and i was like oh I think I inherit I, I inherit the 5k spot this year mm-hmm. what a jerk eh <laughs> so I anyway, went up there but he, he had actually has he has a tree stand in there in that spot that he's that he's left there and uh, I sat in it and I, and, and I, I couldn't quite yeah, like it's overlooking this beautiful grove of, of, of fir forest and there's lots of deer traffic there and uh, actually it's not anymore though it's this now it is now no longer a spot because they logged the, the where we typically uh, like where where I you know where we typically cut is a a nice piece of fir forest adjacent to a nasty ass piece of sure. forest that's thick and holds bucks. Yeah, and yeah. the white-tailed does hang out in the nice open fir forest. Sure. And we, we just stroll around and wait around those areas, and eventually it works the out. Right? Through, yeah, because yeah. yeah. I can't hunt them in the thick stuff unless you're sitting. Yeah, so you yeah. hang out in the nice stuff near the shit stuff. So, anyways, this wonderful spot that well, the reason why I was it, the, the spot itself is. Is now been nuculated because the little strip of fur is still there, but they nuked the forest, so you can sit in this beautiful forest all day. But there's no <laughs> that's what's coming to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. But but I was trying to figure out like how it was a benefit to sit up in a tree when if I can see down on the forest floor, well, they can see up. Like yeah, they don't tip it. I don't think they look for unless they've been you know trained. They don't really look up but they can still catch movement just because the way their eyes are set with the number of rods they have versus cones yeah. their eyes are built to detect movement and so i just feel like you don't have as much freedom in a tree stand from a noise and uh and a movement 
perspective as you do with a ground blind. That's all. But in a tree stand, quite often, it's really nice to get up 15 or 20 feet because you can see down into places that's, where when yeah. you're on the ground, you're it's hopeless. That's right? what the advantage is, is, the, is the sight lines are improved. But as a, yeah, but as a, I don't think it acts. I mean, if I'm sitting on a rock bluff above a steep slope, mm -hmm. guaranteed those deer look up. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. They, they yeah. see me. You yeah. know? So, yeah. Like I, so I think they still look up or, or they're, they're aware of, you know, things above them because there's hills above them. And, um, but definitely as a, there's a lot, number of spots that I have where I'm like, man, if I could just be a little higher, I could sure. just see down that one drainage and that drainage. And then yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. But yeah, the frustration, I mean, I had a, a person who's a newer hunter last week texted me who had been out a lot and had only seen a couple of deer and was really struggling. And so I went out for a couple hours just to kind of walk around with him and we went and checked where he was hunting and there wasn't much science. It's like, okay, let's go down slope and see what's down there. You know, on Google earth, you could see a few kind of swampy areas and we got down there and we saw, I think like I saw 12 deer in an hour of hiking around and it was a matter of just dropping down slope a couple hundred meters. And all of a sudden we were into deer in a big way. They were all kind of compressed in there. So, and so he sat the next day he was out and then two days ago, I got a text message from him. He got his first white tail and he was sitting. So he, you know, it all came together for him. Perfect. Yeah. It's a great story. So I think with the new people, people who are new to hunting and especially white tail, I think the thing is, is you definitely want to develop the patience and go in and find these spots and sit and wait for the deer to come by and it works. I mean, they appear out of nowhere. It's like, it's so incredible. how did this thing just happen? But um, they don't make any noise coming in. No. And they're gone before you. Before. Right. Yeah. And the spots that we, that where we hunt, we hunt like the old regen, like the 30 year old regen stuff that was logged in the eighties and nineties, or we hunt, you know, first stands that you're talking about, but thicker, obviously. And in most of the places we shoot are, it's a 30 yard, 40 yard, 50 yard shot. It's either like a combination of trails that come together. or It's one trail that goes by that has scrapes on it. We just sit there and it's not fun. It's like watching the gray screen on the TV for a day, but it's successful. So, so, the, so what I'm taking away from this conversation is that, you know, maybe some myself and my little, little hunting community, we maybe are relics of a way that probably isn't going to be a realistic way of hunting for, for very much longer given what's happening on our landscape. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, the, the, yeah, it's challenging to see the rate that they're logging the remnant for, from. It's hard to rock. find first stands now, period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yep. so, so the way that we hunt or the places that we look so, but having said that, you, you know, if you, if you shift away, I mean, as much as that breaks my heart to say this, like, so that there still will be good whitetail hunting in this province. And most likely there will be lots of good whitetail hunting as the population continues to grow. It just may not be growing in areas that are where we're managing the doe population or where the hunter pressure is. Where the hunting pressure is. Yeah. yeah. Cause I would say there's places in region three in the Thompson where whitetail deer populations are expanding rapidly and people are not hunting them because they're not whitetail hunters. Right. Yeah. So the, you know, the people who go to the places that you're talking about, they're whitetail hunters and they've got experience, but there's people who are bumping into deer in region three that are shooting the odd whitetail, but they aren't sitting for them. They aren't sitting in the right places. And I think that there's uh, you know, if I had spare time, that's where I would be investing my time and hunting whitetail deer for sure.
yeah okay. not giving anybody a secret spot but i would yeah. be, i would be spending time in in the thompson in region three for sure yeah and we we are actually i think we're at a point where we might try something different mm -hmm. for next year because it really is it's, hard, it's kind of heartbreaking because maybe oh, that's sure. the, the you know the shift is like you know you've you've grown up with something and, and you're lo you're seeing it go away and, that, and that's hard it's hard to take in it and um so I think we'll go on an adventure and explore some new areas, maybe make it to the Kootenays or somewhere in region three. And, and uh, at least we're exploring and learning as we mm -hmm. go and, um, and, and so on. Um, so you, do you just, I mean, on a, on a provincial perspective, continuing to have the, the white tail do hunt, it, 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 I mean, it sounds like it's a good thing if we want to have mule deer in the province. Yeah, that was part of it. And shifting pressure off a of mule deer was part of it as well. Moving it on to whitetails because we know that they're more resilient, more cryptic, more productive. Um, I think that places like the West Kootenays is really, they're struggling with wildlife period. Yeah. And, you know, they've got a, they've got a chunk of ground where, you know, whatever winter range they used to have is mostly covered in reservoirs now. Yeah. yeah. So like the best spots to be a deer covered in, in water and what's left is, you know, pretty high elevation and a real thin band of what you would consider good winter range. And yeah. so, you know, the predation piece there is a real struggle and it makes sense that it's a real struggle because the deer just don't have the winter range, the places that they would have or the places that they have in the Okanagan or in the East Kootenays. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to see some change there. And in the East Kootenays, I understand they've had some major issues with poaching as well. So I don't know if that's going to change or if they're going to try to separate the seasons a little bit to, to, to knock the poaching back a little bit. They've had some real issues with poaching over there, but, but in terms of a provincial direction, I don't think it's, it's going to change anytime right away. I think, you know, there's two things on the go here is that if there ever was a time to see if this season is regulating on white-tailed deer it's now because two years ago and the year before that we had our two worst winters in 20 mm -hmm. years which were like devastating winters so if the white-tailed deer can grow themselves out of those winters and it usually only takes you know three to five years to mm -hmm. do that with white-tailed deer then we know that the hunting season is not the limiting factor yeah yeah, yeah um yeah. and then i also think that these cameras that we have out are really going to be you know i think there's going to be a lot of value in that yeah i should tell so i i the thing, you know, from a, a hunter recruitment perspective and, and creating opportunities for people to have successful hunts. Yep. And, and like, it is great to have a doe hunt because it really is something that you have a high probability of success. And I know countless hunters that have gone and had success um, mm -hmm. chasing does around. And and, and it, it, is, it is super hard to kill a buck in BC, whether it's a mule deer or white tail. Like it's, it's hard. And, and we have a lot of interest in people becoming hunters, but it takes, I'd say three to five years until you sh can be a successful hunter. And then uh, any kind of, with any kind of regular or, or you know, success. Yeah, yeah. And so white tail does do create that opportunity. I think that's good overall, because I think as, I mean, we'd all agree that more people hunting or means more people care about wildlife and pay attention to this stuff and absolutely. are willing to get upset that there's no whitetails around. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so absolutely. Have these yeah. conversations because we're not having these conversations enough and, yeah. and we're not sharing them. So um, yeah. just before we kind of wrap things up, we, we, I think we've done pretty good here. We've covered off 47 minutes of chatting here. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on, on like cougars? Is there, is there a way to keep cougars in check or is it just, well, it's, yeah, so that's like a social discussion. I mean, in Washington State, they tried really hard, didn't have a positive effect. And it, it was partially like this kind of social chaos within the cougar population. Um, and in the Kootenays, they were doing a lot of that. So 
So getting back to, you know, if you want to manage wildlife, so if you want to manage wildlife, you should be shooting the females, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that regulate the population. And so in a place like the Kootenays for years, they had a quota on females, but they didn't have a quota on males. So the people hunting cougars were shooting all these males and only a limited number of females. Well, that just kind of basically yeah. creates a cougar male. Yeah. And what the research is pointing to at least a little bit is saying that these big toms actually have like a territory that they protect and manage. And when you remove these big toms and you have all this infill and social chaos oh, I see. in the yeah. population. Yeah. So, so if you want to manage, i.e. like manage for a number of cougars in an area, you're going to have to shoot females. And so you're going to have to rethink the way that you manage them. So instead of having a female quota, maybe you should have a male quota, which is the exact opposite of what people's brain is tuned into. And certainly there's people who like to hunt cougars who don't always like to shoot them. And so there's a bunch of social chaos there. Yeah. Um, in Idaho, they went in and they did like, they were able to do an experiment um, and they did manage cougars down to the point where, you know, they actually had an impact on the deer population. Cause it's always, it's only one thing. It's one thing to shoot something and to manage it down. But until you see a response in the other species, you're not actually doing anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like with the wolf caribou moose story, I mean, we can shoot 30% of the wolf population every year and you'll never see any response in moose and caribou. Mm -hmm. So you got to get the wolf population down to a certain point where you see the other ones go up. So in Idaho, they did that. And they saw an, an increase in the survival rate of does, but they didn't see it in fawns. So all that meant was that you had more older does on the landscape taking mm -hmm. up resources and you didn't have the fawns coming in. So you were limiting yourself in that sense. Um, some of the Montana, Colorado stuff showed that the deer were nutritionally stressed. So when they gave them supplemental feeding, they were bigger, they had bigger fawns and fawn survival went up. Yeah, okay. So. So the answer is it's not simple. No, no. <laughs> and I think that in terms of the broader discussion, I mean, really a lot of stuff is about managing the land and for deer and cougars and grizzly bears, you know, where you go, you can see the problems. The road density is through the roof. There's invasive weeds everywhere. There's fire suppression. Like the deer don't really stand a chance um, at, at getting back to where they were. And so until you get to the point where you're managing the land for wildlife, instead of timber production or fiber production or road production, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you're not going to get it back, right? The days of the nineties of going there and it was the same in Beaverdale when we hunted there, there was a hillside that was just like, you could go there in the nineties and there was one road that went across the whole mountain. There was no logging on it. It's just one big first down. And as a kid, you know, you could walk through that and see deer all day long. And now you would go up there and you'd be lucky to see deer. Well, you'd get to find a tree. Well, it's, yeah, it's covered in roads and it's been logged. And yeah. so it's just completely, you know, the area is, it's hopeless now, really. Like we don't hunt it at all. So, so let's talk about things we can do. So there's a couple, yeah. couple things. So one, one thing I want to pitch is that, and you guys are doing this through the BCWF, it's that it's sort of getting wildlife cameras out uh, on the landscape, collecting data so we can better understand the, well, the population dynamics uh, yeah. uh, and 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 um, of all species on the land, and and that's that's a really cool tool that we now have as cameras, and then and the the um, BC backcountry hunters and anglers and down here in Region Two, um, we've been working together to try and um, purchase some cameras, and the collective group of uh, volunteers that is the the BC backcountry hunters and anglers, the BHA, 
um, are really enthusiastic about you know managing these cameras and, and getting them out. And we've got some direction from UBC um, and the, and the, the team of researchers there that are sort of giving us guidance on how to best put these up so we can actually collect scientific data around what we're seeing in, in the woods. And I hope to see that um, expand across the province. And I think in partnerships with the BCWF and BHA, that, that's going to happen here pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So people can check out the Southern Interior Mule Deer Project. Just Google it. You'll find it on Twitter, BCWF. It's a huge collaborative partnership. We've got more than one page of partners now, Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, University of Idaho, UBC Vancouver, Okanagan Nation Alliance, BCWF. Um, we've got two PhD students on it. So it's a huge project. You can check it out. So that's a great one. We're always looking for volunteers, whether we can find people, you know, everybody wants to go out and be the one who gets to dart the deer or catch the deer and put the collar on it. Yeah. Those opportunities are pretty limited, but yeah. there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to analyze the trail camera data as well. Um, there's opportunities for people to go out and put trail cameras out. Um, there was some mortality investigation training. So we have actually have volunteers that go out and check our dead deer and go see what killed it and how it happened and when it happened. So. So they can check that out. And of course, we're always, you know, looking for more financial assistance. So if people want to donate in that way to the project, they can. Awesome. Um, awesome. So that's a big one. And that will help the whitetail situation, help us better understand what's going on with whitetail for sure. For sure. I mean, there's data that's, you know, that, that will help for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been all over the province this year and there's, I mean, deer populations appear to be down everywhere. I mm -hmm. mean, it's not, this is not just, it's just my little world that I, that um, started generating this conversation and the thought process behind having you come chat. And then the other thing, and we've sat down and we've talked about this before, is just, uh, you know, asking your MLA to yeah. and, and write or meet with your MLA and, and tell them why wildlife is important. Yeah, yeah, that's the big one. I mean, that's what's going to change the outcome, right? We had uh, a lot of commitments from the various parties before the last provincial election. And I mean, they're failing miserably on them. Uh, to put it bluntly. And so the advocacy piece, I mean, that's, that's the biggest piece that's missing is, is convincing elected officials that we need to start putting money and making wildlife a priority. Yeah. And you can change, I mean, you can change things when you have political will. And right now we're not, we're not there. Yeah, Politicians but, will say they care about wildlife. They'll say they care about endangered steelhead. They'll say they care about the Fraser River. Um, but at the end of the day, the money, you know, till you can cash that check, it doesn't mean much. Yeah, but it, they, but I, what I, I mean, and, and I know this because I work in this world, is that um, politicians are responsive to their constituents. Mm -hmm. And if you say to them, this is important to me, yeah. that we do a better job of managing for wildlife, yeah. that we consider, we manage our forests for wildlife values, uh, along yeah. with managing for, for fiber, yeah. um, that, they will hear that because they have to be and they have to respond. So yep. I encourage everybody out there, if you, if you if you can find the time, set a meeting with your MLA, sit down with them and say, hey, I really care about wildlife. It feeds my family year yep. over year. And I think we need to do a better job of it because I'm out there and I see what's happening. I see the removal of, of logs at a rapid rate and I see less wildlife. And when I listen to podcasts with important people like Jesse Zeman, they're telling me that we got to do more. So um, I really appreciate you stopping in. I know you got to, you got to make dinner plans. So we'll, we'll cut this, we'll, we'll cut this off here in an hour. Um, any closing thoughts before we? No, I, I think what you said, the MLAs and MPs are the big one. I mean, that's the, the challenge and um, people, you know, 
to meet with your MLA, you're going to get a half hour meeting. So if you do that quarterly every three months, you do that four times a year, it's going to take two hours of your time over the course of a whole year to take care of wildlife. And so that to me is the biggest, most important piece. And I would urge people, don't just write a letter. Don't just complain to your friends about it. You have to actually go in there and do it. Yeah. Um, there's a big, you know, there's a big issue, you know, I get thousands of emails a year, people complaining about issues, but there's a big issue with people moving from talking about it to taking action. And the action is the piece that we're missing. And so, yeah, what you said is entirely correct. And you don't need to be an expert because your MLAs are not an expert, but you have to sit down with them and say, look, this is important to me. Here's why it's important to me. Here's what I want you to do to change it. Yeah, yeah. there's plenty of, like we have excellent experts that work yeah. for the government right now that just need to be empowered right. to with resources and the political will to do what needs to be done yeah and if the if our if our mlas and mps hear that enough that they will give those those very talented professionals the resource to yeah. do their job so, 100 um, so are you gonna hunt this year uh, i'm hoping to get out for a day this week before it closes <laughs> Jeez, guy. Jesse, so she's making time to come and talk about wildlife but uh hasn't isn't, isn't taking time for himself to go chase a few around so yeah. anyways i thank you so much jesse this thanks was great this appreciate was really it well. thanks okay. for your time all right bye